Hello and welcome back to another episode of Growing With My Fellow Growers. Slight delay to the start today, but we are back as always, joined by an amazing panel. They kick it over first to Spartan Growing. Welcome back, Spartan. Thanks, Derek. It's happy to be here. Um, shout out to everybody in chat. Um, Spartan Grown, you can find me on Instagram. It's all one word, Spartan Grown, no spaces. And that's the only, the only social media that uh, I have an account on. So everybody else is just a pretender. <laughs> you can shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com if you don't have Instagram. And I can help you with all your, your growing questions. Happy to have you back. And next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Hey everyone, it's Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist. I'm curious to see what we have today to talk about on the podcast. Um, I actually do have a couple of subjects I'd like to talk about. So it'll be very interesting, I think, and it has to do with home growers and um, uh, how we not spread pests to other people, essentially. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. And if you want to know more, you can find my social media at SyncAngel, or you can follow me on Twitter at SyncAngel. That other one was on Instagram, sorry, and on Zenthanol YouTube channel. Happy to have you back, and glad that you could let the people know where they can find you with all that good information and uh, back catalog of great content to figure out about IPM and other uh, pest management-related information. Great stuff, as always. Next up, the American one. Hello, Jack Panel and everyone in chat. It's always good to be here and good to see everyone. I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. And uh, yeah, you guys might know Amy Aces. If you type in amyaces.com, it'll bring you to uh, the Daga Gardens website where you could get some Amy Aces. So I guess I'll throw that out there. And yeah, peace, everyone. Pretty cool to see and hear about that. I know Amy Aces is internationally known people growing it across the pond and all over here in the u.s and uh pretty cool to see one of your own original creations taken off in so many different gardens and people seem to be pretty happy with it quality and uh so really cool good stuff and i know matthew mentioned a couple topics and we'll definitely get into those as well but i want to uh, also mention that we're going to be taking questions from the chat and since we have a short panel this week at the one hour mark probably going to be sending the zoom link off into the youtube for anybody who would like to go ahead and jump onto the panel and show off their garden or ask questions live or just hang out and uh, shoot the breeze with us for a little bit. But uh, without further ado, I guess I'll pass it back to Matthew and you could start us off with your topic for the week. Okay, sure. So basically the question is this, um, we're, we're all home growers, not all of us, but many, many people who watch are, and obviously it's a cheap home grow podcast. So I'm a supporter of people growing and I don't want anyone to confuse what I'm going to say with some sort of, um, you know, lack of support or anything like that. Um, I also support people growing their own food if they can, or, you know, just growing plants that they want to grow just in general. It doesn't have to even be a, a use for them necessarily. Although I am kind of a detractor when it comes to lawns in general, but uh, many years in Southern California and the use of water has kind of colored that perspective, but Anyways, my point is this, there's a lot of pests out here and recently I've been getting many pests, uh, new pests that I've been encountering from people sending me pictures and videos. Um, not always identifiable, but sometimes identifiable to a point. And because I know people in professional settings and also in home growth settings are dealing with, with such pests, hot plate and viroids, a big one. Um, obviously something that plagues all the commercial grows, but also people's, um, 
uh, home grows in some cases. Uh, and then also various like insects and mites and things like this. Biosecurity is important, but in some cases, these pests are so difficult to deal with that if they get into a new location or new place, um, they can change that whole like habitat forever or for an extremely long period of time and a very expensive period of time for people who want to grow. Um, sorry, this is sort of a long-winded pretext, but I guess what I'm asking is how, how do we as growers, I'm curious what the audience thinks and also what the panel thinks, how do we as growers sort of um, rectify the fact that there are going to be people who aren't really going to care or take the time to care about various pests, you know, um, there are agricultural pests that uh, get onto like fruits and produce and things that we grow. And then we exchange that into different places and then it spreads. Firewood, for example, is the main way that uh, a lot of these really uh, nefarious boring beetles get around in California and other parts of the world. And then when they get into this new location, they caused, uh, they cause like terrible, um, almost uh, sort of um, unfixable damage. And so far they have in a lot of cases. So what do we do when it comes to something like hoplite and viroid that is uh, very easy to pass, um, very difficult for people to see its symptoms if they even um, present are sort of inconspicuous in some cases, you can confuse them with other stuff. Um, you know, and it's also very difficult to know for sure that you have it unless you like take, you know, some sort of a, a sophisticated test, which people might not have the resources to do um, or the, the presence of mind to do. Um, I guess, like, how do we keep the community sharing while we also consider the biosecurity threat of some of these pests? You know what I mean? Um, typically, what people, what uh, the government like the USA does is we have quarantine pests and if they detect it or if they find it then the, the, oftentimes they destroy it um, so that it doesn't like get into another location obviously there's some opinions about that sort of a thing and, and, and cannabis is particularly special in that way but I kind of leave it there basically the thesis statement is how do we spread things or how do we keep things from being spread even things that are really difficult for us to tell? And how do we as a responsible community kind of juxtapose those two things? Well, my answer I think is, is, is kind of comes from the, it's always information, right? So I think the best thing that, that we can do or anyone can do is be aware of the situation, be aware of what to look for. You can see some of these signs before you accept clones and cuttings from especially if you have a chance to see the mother plant too um another thing though is is that we have techniques to i don't want to use the word remediate so much we have techniques to um prevent these things or to uh, cure these things with like tissue culture and things like that now that's not reachable for the common person at the cost that it is now but if the knowledge was shared enough to enough people and uh um, you're able, I mean, there's a lot of these home mycologists, if you're a home mycologist, you can pretty much grasp the same concepts that it takes for tissue culture and probably be successful doing it in your own home. Uh, with that knowledge, if, if people had those kinds of knowledges, they could help, uh, help to maybe not eradicate these diseases, but sure slow them down. Without having I agree with that. Strength, I think, you know. I, 
I think knowing is very important in that in that way. I think that's step zero for sure. Yeah, I think the term ignorance is bliss can be uh, nice sounding, but when it comes down to the actual brass tacks and you have to get shit done and you're responsible for the success of a cultivation, you can't just say, oh, ignorance is bliss. Like, hopefully this cut is what it says it is. Hopefully this cut is clean because that can cost you thousands or millions of dollars and completely destroy your entire operation. So with Matthew's kind of question in perspective, yes, there are a few fields of thought, I, at least the way I would look at it. There are the people that are not going to bring in anything. They're going to, you know, I mean, you bring in something with seeds, right? So seeds are potentially a vector, but there are going to be the people that just pop their own seeds, hunt their own clones and grow everything in-house, which not to say it guarantees a clean start, but it limits a lot of the vectors for pests and mildews and molds and things like that that can be easily introduced by bringing in live plant tissue via a clone. So you've got that kind of group of people, but then you've also got the group of people who want the newest, hottest cut and they're going to take in cuts and whether there's stuff out there or not, they're uh, hoplite and viroid allegedly was spread around on gorilla glue, like one of the most common of all cuts. And a bunch of people still love gorilla glue. It's great. It's a great strain. Um, it might've ruined their gardens for a period of time, but they might not have even known that they had it because they never had it before it had hoplite and viroid. So they just got it with it and kind of dealt with it. Um, that's a in particular one because it's latent. You might not even really realize it. You may not, if you've never had it without hoplite and viroid, not know what its potential to yield and uh, terpenes and cannabinoid tests will be without it. So it's tough, but like other stuff that can just straight up kill your crops, like uh, russet mites, for example, or other things that are hard to see that will just devastate your crop. Um, they have to be accounted for. I mean, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. If you bring it in, it is going to cause you a giant headache. So with that in mind, you kind of have to choose, I think, which field you're going to be in, not to like make it black and white or like this box, that box, but a lot of people, I think, are going to take in clones, whether there's risks to it or not, and whether they can mitigate all of them or not, they're going to take clones in and try their best. I mean, most people will just look at it and say, okay, I don't see any pests. I don't see any molds or mildews. It's fine. Then there are other people that will take it the next step and say, I'm going to quarantine it for a week or two weeks or a month or until it's growing healthy. And, and I can guarantee to some extent that it's not going to cause problems in my other area. And even that doesn't necessarily hundred percent guarantee you, but there are steps to those processes that can mitigate or minimize the amount of risk that you're taking when you bring in a live plant. Yeah. I think the best step is to just treat it as if it, it just assume it has something. So in your quarantine, hit it with everything, hit it with all your IPM. Fuck it. You don't have anything really to lose to do that at that, at that early of a stage, you got this whole life to grow out of. It's not, hopefully you're not using anything systemic. Even if you are, it's hopefully out of the plant by the time it's flowered because this is at the very beginning stages. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, hope for that because I've seen Subcool got a cut with something that was systemic and like in the hash, like six generations later, it was still testing positive. <laughs> Jesus I mean, Christ. That's amazing. That's, that's yeah. why uh, GML, he had to have his cuts sent out and tested for everything. And, and a lot of them were, weren't clean because you can't risk running a room and, and, and then losing everything. It's, that's what systemic crazy. means. Uh, yeah, it's in the plant. 
So there's another thing you could do the insurance aspect like that. And, and you could just take that cutting and go get that uh, a piece of, you know, a leaf or something tested and see, see what, see what exactly if it does have anything or not. Yeah. Knowledge is power. I mean, like to the opposite of ignorance is bliss. If you don't know, you don't know. And when you test, you have an idea of like uh, Kyle sent off one of his clones a while ago and we read off the whole list of the Tobayo mosaic viruses and, uh, you know, like hoplite and viroid, and they tested it for like 15 different things. And it's not everything, but at least it's a clean bill of health from these top 15, most likely, or whatever to be coming across. And it, it might cost a pretty penny. I'm not sure what those costs of those tests actually are. Matthew, I'm curious, do you have an idea of what it would cost to send a clone in to get sort of a clean bill of health or to identify if it does have a pathogen? Uh, yeah, it definitely depends on the pathogen. Um, so like, for example, well, for one thing, there's like the cost, like we started at the very beginning, there's just the cost of like in a lot of cases for a pathology test um, kind of depends on what you're thinking it might be. But usually, like in my experience, um, you might be you might be giving them like the whole plant potentially not like the whole whole plant like with the canvas plant but like uh like in cases where i've um had to take those samples a lot of times uh like even if the plant's dead we might like chop the the root ball from the rest of the plant or something like that potentially and then send the whole thing over this was like with gerbers for example which is not totally the same thing here um and as far as price so like you're losing a plant is what i'm trying to say if you think something's wrong but like it doesn't look like it's totally dead yet uh, a lot of times there's like that culling cost. And then um, I think like it can be close to a hundred dollars, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less uh, like per sample. Um, and I think usually that's because they have to cover, of, of course they have to cover the technical cost of the labor, but also um, there's a bunch of consumables that are used up in the process of, of um, looking for various pathogens. Sometimes say, though, that's not necessary, you know, it depends on the problem. I'd say most places you're going to spend over like a hundred bucks to get an ounce of cannabis. I don't know if that's the case for everybody, um, but on the street, I'd say that's pretty fair, at least a hundred bucks for an ounce of like really good quality cannabis. So if you can expect one ounce of cannabis out of your plant, then I guess you could justify that cost to some extent of like, I know I'm at least going to get an ounce out of this plant. So if I spend a hundred bucks to test it, maybe I'll get three, five, seven, ten 10 ounces out of it. And so I made something back from it. Although there's electricity, nutrients, lighting, all the other stuff that goes into it. Um, I think it can be one of those cost analysis that might be worthwhile, especially if it's like a clone that you really like, or it has like a lot of provenance, like Gorilla Glue 4, for example. Um, it might be a bummer if you spend a hundred bucks just to find out that it is infected with hoplite viroid and then maybe you can't do shit about it because you're not going to spend 10 K to get it tissue cultured yeah. and heat treated and cold treated and bleach sterilized of a bummer to, to pay for one plant than to pay for a whole room of plants. <laughs> That's true. And it depends what you're cultivating for. If you're just growing for your own head, it's different than if you're growing like a hundred lighter or something like that. And you've got thousands of dollars invested just in the first month of electricity, like the bills and all that good stuff. But for most home growers, it's kind of like a, I'd say it's a pretty steep investment, actually, like a hundred bucks, although it might not seem like a crazy amount of money, um, especially when I was comparing it to like an ounce cost. Um, it can still be just like, maybe you'd spend that hundred dollars on food or, or water or gas or something else in your life that could be better use. But 
at the same time, it, it depends on, like I said, how much does that plant mean to you? Is it something that you want to have around? Is it, have you found like, oh, this fire OG does really good for my nerve pain, like my one buddy's dad. So he keeps the fire OG around because it helps him a lot. And if something were to happen to that, or if he started noticing like it was falling off, maybe he tested and be like, oh, it's got this. And I wonder if there's anything I can do about it. And Spartan's uh, point that he made earlier, um, tissue culture is actually the knowledge and the experience is what's expensive. The actual materials, I mean, you could make yourself a tissue culture kit for like 40 or 50 bucks, but knowing how to do it with cleanliness and sterilization and, you know, without a flow hood or whatever to make sure that everything is absolutely as it needs to be can, you know, be more difficult than they might look. But if you can do it yourself, you might be able to clean up some of those clones. And I don't know if it's the heat treatment, the cold treatment, the tissue culture or the bleach, but I know that like all three of those things have been talked about in treating for hot blatant viroid and or just cleaning up a old cut that might have some pathogens lingering along and i almost wonder how much of it is like we talked about this in the past episode but somoclonal variation like how much of it is not a, a virus or a viroid or something and maybe the genes are just changing it, it's gotten older it's you know like elderly people they slow down they don't perform as well but hey 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 <laughs> No, I'm kidding. In some aspects, they have better crystallized intelligence, but like their fluid intelligence drops as an example in humans. But with like a plant, yeah. I'd wonder like a 20 year old clone, like a, a Chem 91, right? It's been going around since 1991. Does that plant have the same vigor that it had in 1991? I would question that. Quite or the same seriously. production. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I think the point that you also made that was really critical um, was that uh, like with hot plate and viroid, for example, or like other problems, you know, you've never grown the plant before um, as, and you don't know its characteristics, especially if it's a uh, very unique for like the species of plant you're growing. I'm talking more generally, but in cannabis too, right? Then like, you might not know if you've never, if you've never seen like what regular looks like, you might not know what, what you're, uh, what you're dealing with is actually kind of stunted or, or something like this. Um, so like, again, of course, experience is important. Having that sort of like solid, knowledge foundation is important and I think we kind of have like a like a September never ends situation kind of like uh, it's often described with like the in the beginning of the internet you know um, with AOL and things like that which isn't really the beginning but you know um, like people who had access to computers when computers were less um, common uh, you know it's kind of like you had this sort of seasonal influx of new users and I think that was associated with like people getting older or like it being like summertime or something like this, where there's like more free time for people. Um, and then, but like nowadays there's no season, like anyone can just hop onto the internet or whatever. And so it just, there's always going to be constantly. And of course with cannabis, there's more and more growers, more and more professional growers, more and more home growers. Also globally, it's happening more often. And I like to see it, but also this creates sort of like, um, an incubating uh, effect. And, and uh, uh, certainly there's a lot of precedent with other, other crops, right? And um, there's a few pests even right now that I could perhaps say, um, if I wanted to be grand if I wanted to grandstand, I might say it's our great phylloxera moment, right? Like um, the, the phylloxerans that uh, decimated vineyards in um, the United States and Europe, for example. Um, you know, it changed entirely how um, uh, grapes growing for, for wine in particular, um, was so, 
or like with hops, hop, hop latent viroid uh, is owed to hops before cannabis, right? Um, and the solution to that was growing resistant cultivars and not really, not really growing other stuff. And like, I think whenever I bring this up to people, understandably, it just, it sounds like very uh, horrific. You know, that would be a death knell to a lot of the community outreach and stuff um, and how people interact with the plant. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Like that would be, that would be terrible for the community if we couldn't grow certain things. Well, here's a simple solution that's under a hundred dollars. This is the, I've mentioned them in the past for sex testing, Farmer Freeman, easy XY. You can see farmerfreeman.com here. I'm featuring on the share screen for the podcast listeners. If you want to go check it out afterwards, but Farmer Freeman has recently started offering a $50 virus, virus detection trio which is $50 and it has hoplate viroid, CCV and LCV. They also um, do single tests such as powdery mildew detection. And um, you can get individual tests, I believe for hoplate and viroid as well. And shout out to Flora Nuggs who just sent this to me in the DM because I actually had not known until today that they offered uh, powdery mildew detection and hoplate viroid. Uh, Matthew, do you know what CCV and LCV are? Just click on it. Yeah, that's cannabis cryptic virus and um, lead sclerosis, sclerosis virus, yep. which I have p- videos for both on my channel. If you're if you've never heard of these before and you want to learn more about them, they're kind of still uh, weird cannabis arcana, but definitely learn more about them. Yeah, so I just thought that was a cool little thing to mention because they're a cannabis grower themselves. Um, I've mentioned that many times in the past. They don't just do sex testing. They actually are a home grower. They grow some dank. If you look at their page, they've posted many photos of their own homegrown uh, good cannabis. And it's pretty cool. They've got their self, uh, the devices that are necessary. I think it's, um, I can't remember the actual name. It's the same thing they use to test COVID with the little, they spin around PCR device, I think. That's what it's called. Yeah. PCR, I think you mean. Yeah. So a PCR is used by Farmer Freeman to detect the white powdery mildew to lettuce sclerosis virus to the cannabis cryptic virus and the hop latent thyroid. So for half the price than we were speculating earlier, I mean, 50 bucks is a lot less than a hundred bucks. So even right there and you get two other tests as well. And uh, not that that's going to be a clean bill of health, but at least you get three of the you know major ones and powdery mildew is a little bit more specific. And I think if you're having those issues, you'll be able to figure it out relatively quickly, but it's always good to have that test in case like, my wife, for example, is very sensitive to, um, I can't just say all white powdery mildew because I know that there's like 30 or 40 different strains or something, maybe even more, hundreds probably. And the one that she consumed got her very, very sick, but didn't have much effect on myself or Matthew. And it's interesting um, learning about that kind of stuff because some people have to avoid it much, much more. If they Would it be possible for a strain to, to test positive? Like it would have, for example, hot latent virus, viroid, but not exhibit any of the, you know, because it's latent. It's just, just chilling out there. It hasn't expressed itself yet. Absolutely it possible. So yeah, I don't think you would know in veg. Like from what I've seen, I saw um, he's in Oregon. I can't think of his name. Medicropper, I think. Medicropper. Yeah. Correct. He had a lot of hot latent viroid going on, and he showed plants. Like in veg, you couldn't tell, but in flower, they kind of get like this weak kind of stem, and they start flopping mm-hmm. over onto each other, and like one leaf would touch another leaf to the other plant. And you could see like the plant right next to it where it touched it, you could literally see it like starting to get sick from that branch down to the rest of the plant. So I think that one's a contact and not systemic. So like it will 
in fact, and Matthew could correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think it is regional to the plant. Like, so if it's top leaves are being touched by another plant with the top leaves, that's where it's going to start first before it might spread to the rest of the plant. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's generally true, but like you say, like, um, as a plant like ages, even like that can totally change how the, the pathogen kind of moves around the plant. But, and also, and like you're saying, Spartan, it's definitely true. We're like, you could have like the, the, what's happening, you know, in very, very much of a nutshell is the viroid gets into the cells of the plant somehow, some way, you know, and then um, basically since the viroid, unlike viruses, it doesn't encode any genes. It doesn't need the cell to like, I mean, it needs the cell to make more of itself, but it doesn't need to like make like a protein shell and all this other stuff. So what, what, what the, some of the main damage that it does is it just uses up all of the cellular like machinery that's going to be meant to um, make a bunch of RNA and DNA to make, to express genes and do other stuff that doesn't happen. Instead, it gets all taken up by the hoplite viroid as it builds and builds and builds and moves into more and more cells. And so um, in that way, it can be there, but you might not see the effects of like, like the somoclonal variation we were talking about earlier, you know, some of these effects can be subtle or essentially they don't like express, you know, we don't see it until the population is like many fold more. And then at that point, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's there. And um, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's, it's scary. It's a very, it's a scary problem. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm concerned that it's something we might not, be, we have enough trouble with things that we can see with our eyes that just happen to be like resistant to the plants and all, all of our products or our biocontrols. So like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not news to say, make these points, but um, I hope that we as a community can like attack this thing good and not like, uh, <laughs> I guess all get uh, colonized and and stuff, and, and not uh, and not even know it necessarily. Hoplite and viroid is uh, probably one of the biggest talked about things in the cannabis community in the past few years, and I know I'm I'm sure that they don't like it when people bring this up, but the group out here in California, Dark Heart Nursery, was pretty notorious for spreading it, and then coming out with a discovery of what it is coming out with uh well they didn't discover it necessarily but like posting it to the cannabis community making it more widely known and then inventing a cure that they would go and so like they sold people the infection and then turn around and sell them the cure which i think is a little bit dubious at the very least but the um thing that i had to say about that i guess is to matthew do you have any thoughts or knowledge on like, have you worked with any of the groups that have gone through the process of doing something like sending it off to tissue culture, getting it heat treated, cold treated, bleached or whatever needs to be done. And then seeing the plants kind of before and after, and do you have thoughts on do those processes? Are they showing to be successful? Are they working? Are people getting back up and running um, with essentially clean, healthy plants? Yes. But success is um, almost almost totally dependent on being able to keep yourself from getting reinfected, which is true for other pests too. So in that way, it's very similar to your rice root aphid, to your russet mite, to your spider mite, you know, 
Uh, they don't come from nowhere. They don't just come from the ether. They get there somehow into your crop, you know. And there's a like we've, we've been growing plants for a long time. There's a there's uh, there's also been viruses and viroids in other uh, plant crops that we have like biosecurity ideas for. So it's not like we're it's not like it's the it's, we've never dealt with anything like this ever as humans. But um, the problem is that at a commercial level or even at a homegrown level, do you have the wherewithal, the resources, uh, the knowledge, um, the domain knowledge to like be able to prevent it because you got it. Sure. Well, did it come from, where did it come from? If you can't identify that, uh, it'll happen again. Um, most likely. And of course the obvious vectors are things like your personnel, if they grow, for example, or something like that, they might've vectored a pest. Um, if uh, they, very often, like you kind of mentioned, it can be the case where nurseries can um, vector uh, pests and other sorts of things like that. Sometimes what even happens is that the, the, um, the nursery, uh, you know, they check and they didn't have any problem. And then in transport, there was something in the transport or something gets into them during transport. That can happen too, in which case it's not the cultivator's fault, it's not the nursery's fault, it was from the transport. And that happens sometimes as well. Um, it does. One man, thing I'm that you- I'm glad you said that because I hear so many people complain to me, they'll hit me up and they'll say, you know, I'm not even gonna name the breeders, but so-and-so, I got a clone from such and such breeder at such and such event and it had XYZ pest. I'm like, bro, it was outside. Yeah, <laughs> it means it sat outside all day. You're going to blame that on the breeder? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I mean, it's right. It could it could be very well what you just said, and if you're not accounting for that, because it's easy to just you know it's an antagonistic process sometimes growing things or, and, and or it was already in their garden and they didn't want to admit it to themselves. They bring that clone yes, home that and then they start too. seeing it and they go, <laughs> "Oh, this fucker gave me spider mites." And it's like, dude, you <laughs> had spider mites the whole time <laughs> and you just weren't admitting it to yourself. And like the other one that cracks me up is Matthew mentioned this many times ago, but. Um, there was a cultivator who had a setup where there was grass right outside the yeah. cultivation and the grass was really high overgrown and they would walk through it to get to the indoor every single time. So he walked through there and he's like, you guys are getting reinfected. They cleaned everything up and then they'd get reinfected. They cleaned everything up and got reinfected. And they're like, Hey, Matthew, like what's going on? Like, can you come check out our site, evaluate everything? And when he went there, he saw the grass was too close to the doors and people were walking through it and dragging pests in on their clothes essentially and cut that down throw rocks down around problem solved it wasn't an issue of like the bedroom being dirty or the flower room being dirty or this being dirty it was like they were literally tracking it in every day just walking from the parking lot into the building so something that simple i mean it can literally be that simple you could have the perfect ipm sprays perfect rotation but if you just keep reintroducing the pest every single day because you're walking across a patch of grass that is infected with a bunch of them then you're setting yourself up for failure, no matter how good your IPM consultant is, unless they're able to, like Matthew in that case, point that out for you, that it can just be a physical proximity issue. And there's things that you can do to mitigate that even. So worth uh, checking out all aspects before you spend a bunch of money to tissue culture and bleach or heat treat or what, whatever, just to find out, oh, uh, by the way, my one mother that I've been keeping has hoplite viroid that I didn't do any treatment to. And that's just going to keep on spreading it through the rest of the cultivation or something like well, that. Yeah, the so first time you take cuts off that and then you cut something else and you cut something else, yeah. you just fucking spread it all the way through. It's crazy. I mean, it's really tough with the stuff that we literally cannot see. Like you, can you really blame a cultivator? 
no, I mean, gonna, this is yeah. going to sound terrible, but this is straight Spartan honesty here. And it's like in today's day and age, people, there are so many at least decent genetics out there. A lot of them. I mean, you can just throw a fucking dart at a dartboard and, and probably hit some decent genetics. Don't if something's starting to struggle, just fucking get rid of it. Just fucking get rid of it. I mean, unless it's that one strain that is the only thing you've ever found to work for you. I mean, it's not worth it's not worth the struggle when you can pop something new and find something, you know, maybe better. Look for a cross of it. So many of those Chem 91s have been crossed into, if you go look at Lucky Dog Seeds, the guy who held on to the chem when, uh, you know, the guy who actually found the chem wasn't really cultivating anymore. They had Lucky Dog, I'm trying to think, Skunk VA. Uh, they sometimes call it the Skunk VA chem because he's the one who kept it alive. He showed it to the forums. He posted pictures of it. He held on to it. He shared the cut. And although it is still around, you can still find some pure old Chem 91. There's a bunch of killer ass chem crosses, chem double D, like the dog patch. Like there's so many great. If you want that killer chem, super high potency, funk, just like smack you over the head, strong high that exists. And you don't need to have the actual cut. You don't have to risk getting the hop latent viroid. You could buy a pack of seeds where the breeder is pretty reliable and consistent. And I haven't really seen and other than the occasional white paper, whenever I bring this up. I haven't seen people getting things vectored from seeds. I know that hop latent viroid was just recently proven that it could transfer uh, through seeds, but I haven't seen a ton of examples of it being demonstrated and maybe we just don't know about it yet, but I'm curious. Um, if you had to guess, Matthew, I know it's kind of a shot in the dark, but what percent would you guess would be coming from a clone and like mechanical transmission versus coming from seeds through that transmission? I mean, it's definitely a shot in the dark. I think the intellectually honest answer is um, I think even the experts don't necessarily know as much as they wish they did. I, I feel I feel like it is um, a lot of it is through like mechanical transmission through like cuts and things like that. And 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 um, like like the equipment you use to cut. Right. And then like you you the the fluid inside the plant then gets transferred to another plant and to another plant and i think that is um probably probably the primary way if i had if i was going to guess right um and vertical transmission i think is what they call it when it's horizontal transmission horizontal transmission from a parent to the offspring via seed. that's vertical okay yeah yeah Sorry. so that's what i was talking about the the vertical transmission is possible technically yeah at least from what they're the scientists are saying from what I've seen. Yeah, there, there's some reports that show like um, some percentage of plants, but like the, this is uh, the thing about this is that uh, I, if I remember correctly, that a lot of, if I'm remembering the research, it's um, kind of older and also, um, you know, it's in a laboratory setting. So it's kind of like a hypothetical thing, whether or not it's happening a lot in the field is like the real question. And that's where I think like the really important um kind of research can be done if you're if you're replicating those situations of course it takes more money and resources and time to do this sort of a thing I'm, you know i'm not saying that these scientists are hacks or terrible people for not doing that there might not have been the you know the money and the research uh gumption for that maybe there is now though but um that's how a lot of virus that's how a lot of plant viruses get um uh, moved between plants and many other crops so i think that's a pretty safe bet that that's happening in cannabis because 
um, you know, biosecurity in cannabis, I think is um, generally lower than in other crops, but that could just be a stereotype. I mean, it really just depends on. No, it, it for sure is because I can tell you <laughs> just, and this is like, because of how the market is regulated, which is like lots of. I mean, yes. Right. If we bring that up, then yes, I definitely so, agree with that point. And just like based on what I know, and this is anecdotal, but I know at least a thousand growers who have sent or traded cuts to each other across state lines, across country lines, who have done something which technically would be illegal. If, if I was to send you corn from Ohio to California, it would get confiscated. So there are ag laws that prevent certain pests from coming in and they take it very seriously. Like I've always mentioned whenever I come back from Arizona to California, they stop the people with the fruit trucks and look at them more intensely than like any of the personal citizens or whatever passenger cars. They're looking more for fruit violations than they are for like drug violations or gun violations or anything else. Which yeah. <laughs> it's pretty eye opening because California being, I think, like the fifth largest economy in the entire world, most of that comes from agriculture and horticulture. And if we were to just willy nilly let whatever fruit truck come in from Mexico or Arizona that has a different pest population, it could cause literally billions of dollars worth of damage, like we're seeing with Florida. The citrus greening disease. I don't know if that was a foreign pest, but just a pest it in was. general that can cause yeah. tons and tons of damage and not have a immediately available um, either pesticide or a natural predator because it being in, invasive, there's not a natural predator for it. So then it spreads like wildfire and causes shit tons of problems. So, and you know what the main thing, you know, you bringing that up, uh, first of all, good news, everyone. Um, there is a lot of really good control happening in California citriculture for the Huanglong being, which is the disease caused by the bacteria caused by the uh, psyllid that colonizes citrus. And, but you know what, you know why it was so difficult to deal with in Florida and in California, but particularly California, it's because people grow citrus. It's because commercial gro commercial growers are under threat, but um, we were seeing a lot more in urban areas where people were growing not only citrus for fruit that they would use, but also like basically ornamental citrus. And like, you know, that could be somebody's yard that they never didn't touch in 25 years, right? But the plant's still there and it still gets irrigated or whatever. It's still alive. And that's that's a host, right? So um so, um, so like, I'm not saying that the, uh, the solution is like when we have a citrus, you know, emergency that everyone has to get rid of their citrus. I don't think that's the appropriate response, but um, that's a, an important factor to consider, I guess. And like Spartan said, I, I feel like the number one thing is educational outreach, but I don't think it's, you know, it's sort of uh, passive because somebody can decide to learn that or not, you know, it's kind of hard to well, force that. <laughs> I also wanted to say, though, too, in your opening question, um, you kind of alluded to, you know, it'd be terrible if we were regulated to growing only certain things. And, uh, you know, immediately, you know, what's going to jump in my head when you say that. <laughs> it's like they regulate, yeah, they no. to regulate it completely and it never stopped us. So I don't think that exactly. will ever stop. So I think the better approach is education and, and, and like what we're doing here to just be like well look we know it's there and we know it's going to be a problem so please <laughs> you know try to mitigate this problem i think that's a better approach because yeah there's no way it's going to be at this point the genie is out of the of the lamp and it's not fitting back in it's it's going to be out there and there's 
I don't care how much control you think you have. I mean, they're growing it in Russia. They're growing it in fucking North Korea. They're growing it everywhere where you're not supposed to grow it in Japan. They're still doing it. So um, I don't think it'll ever be a case to where it can be controlled to that extent. Well, my question, well, and, and you make a good point about the allusion to like uh, regulatory bodies. Um, like, obviously, they're not a hundred. Even if I were to agree or disagree, they're not 100% effective, right? So you right. would want something more robust anyways. And information and uh, education is more important, I think. But also, um, even if there were no regulations, sometimes what happens is like, like, for example, if you wanted to, you know, you could grow hops in your backyard, right? right. At least where I live. Um, right. But like the problem or some other pest, it would be a problem because you it doesn't matter that there's no regulations against it. The pest presence would be so severe that if you grew those other vulnerable plants, potentially, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't produce very well, or they might die, you know, and like, right. and like what we see with the bananas. For more pest. <laughs> or yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you don't get anything. And then everyone else in the tri-state area gets a problem. And it's like, you know, I can see how like, you know, uh, shame-based cultures start to <laughs> sort yeah. of develop out of that. Like, why are you, you know, messing everyone else up? Kind of a similar debate with regards to like outdoor hemp and pollen. Yeah. I was just going to bring that up. That. I was literally going to say that. Because uh, when you were talking about people growing citrus and just kind of letting it go outside, uh, even non-hemp, like even just cannabis, if somebody grows a male cannabis plant and they just buy a pack of regular seeds and in California everybody can grow sticks thankfully in some regards they did ban outdoor cultivation for 67 percent of California so two-thirds of California you're not just going to have random males blowing off pond and Humboldt County banned all cultivation of hemp in general so there's no hemp cultivation in Humboldt County because they know their high dollar their high crop is coming from the THC side that's where their legacy lies but like in the Central Valley where there's not uh sort of long history of high quality cannabis they can grow hemp outdoors which could potentially fuck over the neighboring farms if they're trying to grow thc crops because especially if they're growing the hemp for a seed then there's going to be a ton of males and tons of pollen and as we've seen with uh, spain and morocco there's pollen that can literally fly miles especially overnight in the nighttime pollen can without the sun messing it up the uv will kill off pollen over a certain amount of time but in the nighttime, it can blow over oceans and, and uh, lakes and bodies of water and end up in a different country. So if we're talking in the same state, in the same county, yeah, stray pollen, uh, even a, a single male plant, or if you threw out six and for some reason got unlucky and you didn't know anything about cannabis and all six of them were males, you just let them go and you're like, oh, I'm going to have so much dank bud. And then you just end up with a fuck ton of pollen and no bud. <laughs> but it, it is possible. And I'm sure people have run into issues with that. And going back to the education thing, like educating your neighbor, making sure that they're not just growing males or if they're going to grow, you know, maybe start them with some fems or with some clones that they can throw outside and get themselves some flower and, you know, get into it the right way without potentially harming themselves or the people around them. In my uh, hazelnut video um, or hazelnut powdery mildew video, I explained that, um, you know, interestingly, it seems like there's a, a preponderance for, uh, powdery mildew species to like start isn't really the right word here, but basically there's populations that exist in various places and um, they can even travel across like the ocean, like uh, like Jack was saying here. So like 
and like it might take some time for it to move from like maybe like Turkey, Turkey, for example, where a lot of hazelnuts are produced to like, you know, different parts of the world. And then like, you know, the, these spores, they just get into the jet stream and they move great distances and it happens. And like, uh, it's, uh, it's, um, it's like the micro scale situation is like you're growing on your property, but your neighbor right next to you has like an ant mound and you can't like get rid of these ants or, or there's pests coming from their backyard to your backyard. Well, when it's countries and provinces and like, you know, entire, you know, geopolitical economic zones, um, you know, it does kind of make sense that we can all be on the same page, but that's, uh, that's a story as old as time, very difficult to achieve. And um, I, uh, I'm very, I'm, I, I'm, I'm concerned also that like moving, like looking forward a little bit, um, maybe the things that make cannabis cultivation so difficult might even be things that lie right, you know, totally outside of like how well we cultivate, how sustainably we cultivate, which are things that I care very deeply about. Um, you know, I. Uh, I run with the regenerative agriculture type folk and I consider myself a supporter of that movement. But like, I know I've read some research that's a, that looks at uh, some aspects of regenerative agriculture. And um, it was interesting to read sort of the opinion that if we don't consider socio-political aspects, right? Like, you know, like for example, legislation or, or lack of legislation or, um, you know, things that are maybe restrictive that don't actually do anything but harm people who are growing and like identifying problems like that. Um, you know, things are more complicated than get some land, grow some food, and not worry about anything. Because like, people were doing that for a long time. And that certainly wasn't the uh, panacea for all life's problems. So I it's just the wonder... county motto, though. I mean, yeah, the, back well... to the land movement. <laughs> A lot of them yeah. did it to grow their own food and then got into weed just to be able to afford, you know, paying off the land and, and living up there. But uh, something 710 Canuck mentioned in the chat, we talked a little bit about earlier. I asked Matthew to take a stab in the dark. I, I do appreciate that he didn't just throw out a random number because um, it's good to come from a place of data and science. Uh, 710 Canuck says reports show 10 to 15 percent estimates for hoplite and viroid vertical transmission. They didn't link any uh, studies or data or anything. So I'm not sure where that's coming from, but that was in response to a medically fit comment earlier. So it just gives me an idea that around 90% ish. Um, and again, that's just a guess it, or uh, some study that they did that might be entirely inaccurate. Maybe there are some insufficiencies with the study. Maybe a hundred percent of it was actually uh, mechanically transmitted, but they thought that seeds were transmitting it because they couldn't track the fact that these plants over here that had hoplite and viroid, they didn't realize that transferred it to another one. They're like, oh, that plant started from a seed and it's got hoplite and viroid. So maybe it must have been vertically transmitted or something like that. Or what if the viroids that are here now are different than the viroids that were there before? What if like, you know, what if they are more adapted to vertical transmission or less potentially, you know, like uh, that and it's the hoplite and viroid A, hoplite and viroid B, and hoplite sure. and viroid C, because like with this pandemic that's been going on, there's a new Omicron. variant every two months, and they all are more infectious than the last one. It's going to infect more people and kill more people, blah, 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 blah. And I'm wondering, is hoplite and viroid going to get more infectious and more deadly and more uh, less less latent and more you know prominent and showing itself? Yeah. Like, 
be curly top virus um, is an example of this and it, it infects cannabis and and uh when researchers like sequenced the genome, right, of the BCTV that they found from cannabis samples, uh, wouldn't you know it? They matched um, like very high, like 99%, 98%, 99.5%, I think, uh, um, in different, for different cultures anyways, uh, to like um, to populations we already had known in like peppers and um, other crops. I don't remember off the top of my head. You can check out my video about that, but like, you know, so obviously like, uh, and those, and there, there's like, a, there are mild and severe variants, um, in that case. So like, so like, and some plants, you know, just for people who don't know, who might not be familiar. Um, sometimes plant viruses in general, like they don't necessarily kill every plant. Some plants can have a, a virus in them that will just absolutely destroy some other plant near it, but not it. Um, Maybe that's even... beneficial, right? To not kill off its host is actually a beneficial aspect of a virus because then it can live on for longer and maybe spread to other plants of the same species or other species and cause damage yeah. in some way. Yeah, I do. I do want to make the point that and you're, you're totally right. So like in so, what I was trying to articulate is that sometimes like the it might not even be like, um, how do I put this? Like it might not even colonize the cells of the plant. Like maybe it's kind of like, a, you know, it's not a suitable host. Right. So like sometimes an insect comes in and like maybe like takes a, a drink and uh, transmits some some of the virus, but the virus doesn't take. Other times the virus can just live in the plant and colonize, but it doesn't give any um, physiological it doesn't for, for whatever we can tell, at least it doesn't seem to have any overt physiological um, effects. And, and like you say, that can make it a, a great host. And then other insects come in and then can vector to other plants. Um, so you don't even necessarily know for sure if a plant has BCTV, specifically that one that, which colonizes like hundreds of different crop plants and, and uncultivated plants with no symptoms sometimes. So like, yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's something to know. And like with powdery mildew, even when we do research, we, we want to make sure that it's a, um, the correct virulence, you know, like, wouldn't it suck if you did a, um, uh, pathology test for a powdery mildew population, but you didn't test to make sure that the um, powdery mildew you were using is representative. And it happened to be a kind of a hypovirulent strain and wasn't very effective at colonizing. And you do a test and you're like, wow, these plants are resistant and they're not, <laughs> you just messed up. But if you don't think to check for that kind of thing, you run into problems. So um, yeah, like th there's so many complexities to it. So this is a little bit of a shift of topic, um, but automation is freedom and a few others have been talking about it in the chat. It's been a little bit dominating the conversation over on the chat side of things. So I want to address it quickly and uh, just give a nod to one of our previous episodes. We did a whole show on light cycles. Automation is freedom asks, has anyone on the panel veg plants with 12 and one schedule, meaning 12 hours on five hours dark, one hour on five hours dark. Uh, so essentially you get uh, one hour of light in the middle of your dark cycle to keep the plants in veg. It's also known as the gas lantern or gas lamp routine. And it says, he follows up and says, seems great, saves five hours of light time at Cheap Home Grow. We've talked about this a little bit. A bunch of people tried it at Cocoa for Cannabis with very poor results. They grew smaller plants. They took longer to veg and they yielded less. Eagle Gardens has been trying it lately. He's an HPS grower and he has a 
auto flowering plant that was not an auto flower. I think that has to do with 12 one. If I had to guess, if you have a plant that's 12 on five hours dark, it gets that PFR or whatever the, you know, it, it's starting to think that it's going into the night cycle. That one hour can interrupt the night cycle and keep some plants in veg. However, certain plants that are often referred to as early finishers or stuff that ends at, it will flower 18 hours, but not 24 hours. It's like a semi-auto. It's not a full auto. That stuff might start auto-flowering on you in like Eagle's case. Point. He's running 12-1, trying to save money on electricity. And one of his photo period plants is now auto-flowering because he's running 12-1 to save yeah, that like, few. For example, Jack, what you're talking about right now in our outdoor garden, one of our, we have two outdoor gardens and one of them, we have banana daddy out there in flower right now. It looks like it's fucking week two of flower and it is fucking where we've we're not even we're not even out of fucking july yet so and everything else is still vegging everything else is still vegging so there's always that one you know what i mean and one that's it also is super leafy so i'll probably never grow it again outdoors but yeah i mean that just shows me <clears throat> this is a absolute save the most amount of money possible not absolute make yourself the highest production highest quality possible a, a goal because when you're looking at it, it came from greenhouses. The guy who's pushing this the most right now, his name is Joe P. Joe Pietri. He's never once said the word DLI, daily light integral. He has no idea what that means. He has no idea that it exists. He has no idea that it's studied and it's well understood. He has no idea that horticulturalists are using that currently in greenhouses and they're supplementing light. They're still running, maybe not 24 on, maybe not 18 on, maybe not 17 on, but they're running the lights during the daytime and during the night cycle to get a certain DLI. And he's used to seeing people use HPS, high pressure sodium lights. And for a long time, people gave way too much light. So if you were vegging 24 hours on and zero hours off like Eagle was, and like many others were, or 18 on and six off, you're probably giving too much light, especially if you're using a thousand watt HPS. Um, and not that they were using those in veg, maybe they're using T5s or whatever the case may be. But if you look more into DLI, you can figure out how much PPF or PPFD your plant can handle and over how much time thing is the plant can actually handle close to it's 100%. Let's say 100% is a thousand PPFD of light with 400 CO2, because that's what the Chandra et al. And many other studies have found. Um, it's actually 750 PPM of CO2 and a thousand PPFD. But when you double that CO2 uh, to 750 from 400, I guess the base, it's a little less than double. You can run as high as 1500 PPFD of light the entire time from the second that the lights turn on to the second that the lights turn off and they can take tissue samples and show this is how much photosynthesis is happening. This is how much yield is happening. They've done these studies. They've done the science. They've done the testing. So for one guy who granted he's been growing for like 70 years or whatever, and he has a direct aid to all growers Instagram account and he has the skunk fan podcast and he has Eagle and all these other people trying to push you to go under 12 and one, take a PPFD measurement and then come talk to me. Look up DLA and then come talk to me because if you're running an LED at 100 watts, it's different than if you're running a thousand watt HPS. So don't try and tell me that every single person in the planet should be running 12 and one. I don't believe that. I've seen that it has negative results for dozens of growers who've tried it. And I'm seeing people like Eagle who believe in it and are, are advocating for it have negative consequences like having auto flowering plants that were not auto flowering when they were using 24 on or 18 and six. I use a 17 seven. 17 on, seven off, or 16 on, eight off. Because in San Diego, our time period is 9 p.m. till like you know, one in the afternoon. 
it's way cheaper than from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. Right. So I'm trying to keep my veg cycle out of, if I was to do that whole Joe P schedule, 12 on one off, the one hour of light in peak costs four times more than Damn. the off peak hours. So he wants me to run one hour of light during super peak in California, which would literally cost as much as four hours, 15 or 16 on, which I do. It's going to cost me the exact same amount as running 12 and one. So you have to take into consideration where you live locally. Do you have time of use electrical? I do here in San Diego, but you might not. Maybe like I know somebody who lives in New York. They don't pay a power bill. They have solar. It offsets. So they grow weed for free. They literally have zero power bill. Their whole entire yeah. unit is all offset by the I know solar. somebody like that. Yeah. So it really depends on your situation so don't just but, listen i mean to... just just for everyone i mean just for everyone to understand like the real food of your plant is light that's the real food of your plant that's what builds mass that's what builds the weight is light the light is what's doing that it's not the fucking water it's not the fucking mineral it's the fucking light so suggesting to use less light and somehow making a better quality output is beyond science is beyond what biology says and physics. I mean, there's the um, Dr. MJ mentions it in the past, but it's like um, the law of thermodynamics, like the amount yeah. of energy that was put out is directly equated to the amount of energy that the plant can use to grow. Photosynthesis, what the plant uses to grow. Photo means light synthesis. It's synthesizing the light. It's making that chemical reaction change. It's taking the physical light and turning it into the chemicals that it needs. So if you're giving it less of it, it can do less photosynthesis, AKA less growth, less production, less yield. And there is diminishing returns. Once you get past 1500 PPFD at a, a 750 PPM of CO2, if you go to 2000 PPFD, you'll see four out of five plants actually start to have their yields drop. So there is a photosensitivity where if you overload it, like that's why I said, there's that hundred percent level where like once you get to a maximum amount, you don't need to go higher than that. But what he's suggesting, and he's stated several, several, several times, I've seen him on many different podcasts. He says, less light, more yield. And it's like, okay, show me a side-by-side -side test. To believe. Show me a side-by-side -side test. Show me one single side-by-side -side test because I know 10 growers who've done side-by-side -side tests themselves. I mean, and all I mean, 10 it's possible, switch back. It's possible that maybe, like you in your example, Jack, what you were saying, like how most back, everybody wanted to throw a thousand watt in a four by four and, and run it low. So they were overlit. So then maybe when they switched to the 12 one, they got, maybe that's possible that they got better, better yields. But I mean, I have a really hard time believing if they had proper fucking lighting at, at the, at the, we'll say 18 hour on, we won't even say 24. I mean, just the speed of growth alone, you know, you don't have to veg it for fucking three, three months. You know what I mean? You can veg it for a month. But uh, two weeks in some cases, I know people yeah, that there's so many two weeks. There's so many, I can't wrap my mind around how that can work, like how, how that's possible. You know, I'd love for him to explain it to me. And, and, and yeah, and when people say I don't can't explain it, it's just magic, that's when I start to lose interest. Well, he'll say some plants, <laughs> let me Go just ahead. mention some plants at the equator, they basically only get 12 and 12 their entire existence. So forget about. Even a veg, right. yeah, they just have that. that. His flower, that. that'd be amazing to have concept. a flower room. That's your outside. That's your flower room. Your outdoor. Your His backyard. flower concept right. is is even even more crazy in my Less. opinion. <laughs> he says to go six hours on, eighteen off. That's his preferred. He says at most eight hours on. At most eight hours on. 
he doesn't even believe in 12 12 he thinks that's a giant waste he's like oh don't yeah. go from 12 1 go to eight on 16 off and if you're a real pro do only six hours on and it's like i want to be yeah. honest i tried 11 instead of 12 hours in flower and i did feel like it got a tiny tiny bit more terps maybe but the yield loss I ran 11, 13 and I have run it for a while because I was running too much light and I figured, okay, if I'm running a little bit too much light, that I'll run it for sense. one hour less. Yeah. And also I read DJ Short's book about how island style, like in Hawaii, most of the year they actually get like an 11, 13. And in my experience, Hawaiian bud has been some of the best that I've ever had. And it's probably more the climate, the environment, the genetics they're using and all the love and passion that goes into it. But I tried the 1113 and um, didn't see a major drop in yield. And I was seeing a little bit more color. I think that maybe the nighttime giving them more rest, I guess, gives it a little bit more time to develop maybe terpenes or uh, some of the anthocyanins. Maybe it's just a little bit cooler during the night cycle. So more of those anthocyanins are developing. But with that said, I just this last run for the first time, because uh, it was actually because timers, <laughs> my timers didn't, I clicked one too many or two too many little knobs on them. And um, I ran 12 on 12 off with my main light, but I have my red lights come on 30 minutes before and 30 minutes after. So like I do like the sunrise and sunset effect essentially. And because I have the 730 nanometer, the far red and deep red combination, they essentially can go to sleep a little quicker. And everybody's told me for years and years, oh, you should run 13 on and 11 off because that way you're running more light, you'll get more yield. And um, I actually did that this time versus like the 11 on 13 off. And although I got a massive ass yield, um, I did get some foxtailing, but it's summertime. And I will admit it was like 86 to 90 degrees for a good chunk of like mid to early flower. And only one of the plants, like the one on the right is really heavy foxtail. The one on the left is actually like slight foxtailing. So it was right on the borderline, I think, of uh, like genetics and heat, but yeah. yeah, I think genetics have a lot to do with plants that can uh, take the heat. Because I had some that seemed they like that above, like between 85 and 90. They're just as happy as when they're in better, uh, or what we think is better temperature. That's like the one on the left. It was, it's probably the second biggest yield I've ever had on any plant. And it looks like pretty dense, like golf balls with like the tiny little like crowns starting to poke out. Like not a full foxtail, but you see like the little... I don't even mind getting the foxtails, like man. Nubs, I'm fine yeah. with foxtails. As long as they're not too crazy. Like sound that like, you know, if they're not like this long or something, if they're just short little crowns, I love seeing the crowns on the buds. So this one, it's funny. The tops are the only parts that are actually foxtailed. I'm not like my left plant was perfect. The right plant is a little smaller and a little more foxtailed, but it's way denser. And um, it's funny because I almost thought there was like hermy issues because it was getting that like really lime green, like little uh, tips where yeah. you almost see like you're, there's like a banana shooting out. But mm -hmm. some buds I've seen, they get that like lime green, but it's just the bud structure. And it was just like a really tight nug and it just kind of crowned out. And it only like the bottoms are all golf balls, but the top, it literally kind of looks like my fingers like this. Like you've got your bud and then like the crowns, it's super frosty. Like I'm imagining I'm going to dry sift a lot of that one just to see because those plants in my experience are great hash makers. Because I've mentioned like if you take your hand and dip it into a bucket of sugar, and your fist is like this, you know, there's only so much surface area, but if you stick your fingers out, it can coat your finger in all 360 direction and you pull it out and you get a lot more of that actual sugar or trichome. So more surface it's interesting area. to see like it literally the entire foxtail is coated all the way up. So I'm like, Oh man, 
I'm, I'm not too worried about it, to be honest. I, before I even knew what foxtails were, I actually loved a strain called Grisilda Blanco, um, named after the uh, lady who sold cocaine or whatever. The, it's also called Colombian Jack, because I think she's a Colombian or whatever. But um, my wife and I loved it. It was like kind of like an apple, like a green apple smelling sativa. And it had huge foxtails. And I didn't really know what they were, but I liked it because they would pop off the bud so easily and they yeah. grind up really nice. They like fit into the grinder real easy and they just smush down and bust up real quick. And I was like, man, I really like that Grisotto Blanca. And then uh, one of the first strains I grew when I got back into growing was Blue Dream. And it had kind of a foxtail sativa hazy structure. And I like wasn't super bummed about it, but a lot of people online are like, that looks like shit. You should restart. <laughs> I'm like, whatever, <laughs> man. Like I smoked it and it, it was fine. Oh. And, Biggest my, buddy Bates, my buddy Bakes Pone just got the Santa Cruz cut, so we're excited to see that go. It's going to be a absolute neither, beast. Yeah, neither one of us have grown the Santa Cruz or smoked it, so we're, we can't wait to. You're in for a treat for sure. It's one of my favorites. If, if it's the real deal and you guys grow it well, which I can imagine both of those things are the case, then other than the actual like managing it, because it's one of those plants that will do 10 pounds outdoors in Northern California, like. 10 plus like we we're talking 12 13 pounders on occasion and it just becomes a monster like mammoth plant shoots every direction like it, it's branchy unwieldy but if you tie it around and, and trellis it up and, and spread it out and just get enough bud sites visible it'll be some of the sweetest terpiest like best highs in my experience i love we're that stuff we're gonna make sure to put it outdoor next year then we'll we'll fucking try to tame the beast it might be a, a weird finisher, but I know Northern California is actually similar uh, latitude to Michigan and like some of the finishing times. I know, uh, shout out to Twisted Roots. He grows some freaking Mendo Dope style Cali trees up there in Michigan. So I know it's possible. Yeah, we try to keep them smaller. We uh, on purpose try to keep them smaller because we have a smaller space to grow in. But uh, we just uh, actually threw down our first um, prototype, we'll say. But no, it's going to be the real deal. We're going with it. But our first attempt at how we're going to trellis these things and uh they worked out good it was just a simple t-post driven into the ground i just stood on a bucket and drove them into the ground with a sledgehammer <laughs> and um you know two on, we have three rows of what is it four plants so it's yeah because it's 12 plants total in there so we have three rows and so we just put two posts on each end of each row and then we just we're going to do a trellis a one continuous trellis net over those four plants held by the um the T post on the ends. And then we put, we drove just regular uh, state, you know, the big green stakes in the ground in the middle to help just hold the trellis net width wise, you know, hold it tight, taut that way. And it looks like it's going to work great that way. So we're probably going to do two nets on most of the plants and one row is really short. We might get away with just one net. The blue dream will like, if, if it's like your sparkle face or whatever, growing next to the fence, Instead of just being one little section, your entire fence will be like a, a be bush a of blue dream, just spread <laughs> like that little device that I kind of show that grows the plant sideways, like yeah, the Trellotech or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, big printer looking thing. Yeah, dude, that I, honestly, like, it's there. We talked about creepers and like creeper highs, but then I talked about the creeper structure. I think blue dream would fall under that creeper structure where it's got such long side shoots that the lower ones will actually start to like droop onto the ground and like start growing roots. And it's funny because like some of those will actually uh, squirt back up. Oh, no other grows jumping in. Cheers, no. Hopefully it can. That's I don't know how long it's cool. been waiting. So you could actually have like multiple points of uh, like support on the ground, like trunks. Yep, yep. And uh, I've seen people that will like bury them and then like it'll grow back out and you'll get like these little buds on the ground. Usually, almost always, those buds get molded. In my experience, to be quite honest, uh, it's um, being that close. Portritus, bud rot. You know, 
it's it's a mess down there but it's cool to see when you actually like witness what looks like a wild jungle of a plant just sprawling over and taking over like a spot in the field it's quite amazing hey uh jack i have um uh, medically fit and a few other people in the comments were talking about it i think steve might have mentioned it too but um i had this instagram post they wanted me to talk about the uh, viroids that were able to, that were found in uh fungus and the implications for that as a vector if we have some time for that that's we, we will i just want to let noah say hello and introduce himself and then uh, you could go to that and then we've got a few other questions that i want to get to in the chat that are somewhat ipm related and then some uh other stuff nice how's it so, how's it going everybody uh yeah i'm noah the girl with trees and uh if i'm in the scrum there and the most weeks here sorry to be late but uh happy to be here it's all right we actually started off a little bit late as well so uh we're just happy that you made it happy to have you and uh go ahead matthew take it away yeah so um I don't I actually don't at this moment remember if this was the original post I made about the top, but I think that it was. Um, so this was a, a post from a a uh, a paper called Viroid Biology, not just for plants anymore. Uh, Microviroid species are becoming better. Or no, actually that's not the title. I'm sorry, that was my title. Uh, but I think it had kind of a funny name like that. Um, in any event, they had found that there were. Uh, fungi that um, can take up hoplite and viroid, or not sorry, hoplite and viroid, but viroids in general. And it made us maybe wonder, speculate if that could also be true for hoplite and viroid. Um, and it's just kind of interesting because also I had recently found uh, there was a there's a tissue culture uh, research group called um, Three Rivers, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Three Rivers Biotech here. And they, um, they said they found, this is a conclusive evidence, but this is interesting evidence of hoplite and viroid in the guts of rice root aphids. Now, the way that aphids feed is that they put their, uh, their like long needle-like mouth part in the tissue of a plant and they drink the sap mainly. And so of course, this is why there are such good plant virus vectors in general. And just, but just because you get, just because you're able to get it in your body doesn't necessarily mean that you're a conclusive um, or, or a really what we call competent um, uh, vector for a virus. It's possible that, and there's different kinds of virus vectoring behaviors with aphids or, or uh, I guess I should say um, ways that it happens because some, some plant viruses can like uh you know they it get just into be a the trigger right it could just be the the man like a mechanical trigger of the aphids physically hurting the plant being a stress around the plant that makes the latent virus not latent anymore and express could that be possible or i mean because how, oh, how did they how did mean? they in their study how did the in their in their study did they test the plant to prove that the plant was clean and then they just introduced the pest and then the plant wasn't clean because I'm saying, like, couldn't couldn't a stressor make a latent virus then become virulent? I don't know how to say the word virulent. Virulent, like, um, yeah. you mean like a virus that was already there? Yeah, yeah. Like if it was just laying there, but it was dormant, we'll say, mm -hmm. and it wasn't really affecting the plant in any way. 
but once the plant was stressed by a pest pressure then it would then it could uh come to life and bloom and take over as the plant oh, I see what weekend. you mean yeah well what actually the reason why it's not conclusive here is because um they didn't go from uh one host to a clean host and then uh like actually confirm transmission which is what you would uh, want to do this yeah. isn't like a peer-reviewed research report or anything like that but to answer your question yeah um I think of uh, a research report I read about, this is a little bit different because I think this was like a retrovirus in a plant. And I want to say it was, uh, uh, was it like mango spot something virus, but papaya ring spot virus maybe. And what happened was that uh, when the temperature got a little hotter for the plant, they found that the, that plants that had no symptoms started to have like really impressively severe symptoms and it was a heat stress reaction that allowed the oh. it to go from being dormant to not dormant but that's like a very specific example for a retrovirus but i think that it is true that for a lot of things actually um there are other pathogens like botrytis that can be systemic in a plant you know how much this is true for cannabis it's not really understood but in other plants at least it can be you guys have heard me uh talk about it it can be kind of asymptomatic and then the plant starts to mature and starts to flower and suddenly um, it becomes very virulent and sort of activates and there's probably a lot of things that are happening like um, immune responses uh, just changing um, aspects of the physiology just kind of changing and, and I think those factors activating um, probably have some sort of triggering effect and I don't know the mechanism so something like what you're talking about definitely can happen um, in this case though with the hot latent thyroid um, you know, it's, it's just kind of, I guess it's just kind of, for me, it's a good reminder about how, because there was a lot of speculation even before this came out, that this is a possibility. Could um, aphids and other insects uh, vector hoplite and viroid? And the official answer is we don't really know. And if so, to what degree? Um, but it's the least likely. I feel like it's plausible. I feel like it's plausible, but I don't, I don't know. And also like, kind of going back to our point about um, like with testing and, and not knowing, you know, one strain from another potentially, like it could be the case that it does happen, but it happens like 1% of the time, let's say, or 5% of the time or something. Um, maybe we find out that just because there's, uh, you know, markers for viroid in the gut doesn't mean that it is um, like alive or active essentially, right? Like the, right. the viroid, it might just be pieces of the viroid essentially that have been um, maybe enzymatically broken down or something like that. So things like that can happen. And it's, uh, I got, I, I tried to be, I should probably be a lot more, I probably have a lot more emphasis in my posts about this kind of a thing. But um, I did try to mention that it's not um, uh, perfect proof, but uh, it does mean that um, it just reminds us that this kind of thing happens, you know, and I think it, serving to keep us on our toes, at least is a, is sort of a good thing, but I would like to see more from, uh, Three Rivers Biotech coming around and they actually reached out to me and let me know that they would be letting me know what they find out in the future. So I am very curious to find out what they find out. I'm interested as well. And, um, we have a question or a comment from potent Ponix who says Enthanol OMG <laughs> talk about the HPLVD powder BS. And I think we've already talked about this in past shows. There was a claim oh, yeah. that some green powder could be thrown on your plants and it would cure them of hot blatant viroid. We've 
sort of debunked that, but I want Matthew to be able to expound upon that and, and say why maybe it's not the truest or best uh, marketing. Absolutely. So the problem with um, the the problem with that is that like so viroids are viroids are difficult to deal with primarily because well viruses are difficult too, but these are difficult because they are essentially just a really interestingly constructed strand of RNA. And to the plant, the RNA um, reads like the RNA that they use to create proteins for the cell. So they are functionally, they look almost exactly the same. So the little mechanisms that um, transcribe messenger RNA into uh, DNA, um, you know, those, those uh, they get confused, essentially. They take it for something else, and then they um, sort of faithfully create more and more copies of the viroid. And there's different, a little, there's different versions of the virus. So if you were to apply something like a powder or a chemical, because people ask, well, why can't you just spray, like, a viricide or some, something like that? Or, or could you, like, uh, could you, like, vaccinate your plants, essentially? Could you inoculate against a pathogen? And there are things like that that are kind of possible but the thing is that anything that would affect the rna would also affect the plant rna which is not great for the plant's um development you would still run into the same problem you'd probably have a lot of mutations and um sort of like a, especially an expression that would result from that if you use some sort of like you know like something that would affect dna like that's not great um, <laughs> So that's why, like, it doesn't make sense. Now, the product that I was talking about, um, I guess the, the powder was supposed to be like an immunostimulant. But again, like, um, and I've covered this in other presentations and things, like, stimulate the immune system is too vague to be helpful as a, like, as a thing. What does it stimulate? By what mechanism does it stimulate it? How so? Because, um some aspects of the plant immune system can be uh, but benefited and sort of bolstered and, and primed, but that comes at a cost, a physiological cost, an energetic cost, but also like, you know, you can't make the, like, it's like a, how was a good analogy? Like, you know, you can make something, you can make like armor. This is going to be a weird analogy, but like, <laughs> if you make it really sturdy and heavy, you know, it comes with, well, if you're very sturdy and strong, you might come with being not pliable and not heavy and very heavy. So there's downsides to that. There's physical repercussions of making like armor really heavy. On the other hand, if you make it really light and flexible, you might lose that rigidity, right? So it becomes less armor-like and more like clothing or something like that. So in the same way, that's how plant physiology works. You can't simultaneously make um, or at least not easily. And a lot of times these signals, they antagonize each other. So if you make a plant really like short and stocky and um, uh, kind of like hardened off, you know, that can be really great against things that like maybe bore into the plant or are trying to chew on the leaves or other sorts of things like that. But then that, that necessarily means that it can't reach up really quickly to grab more sunlight and outcompete the shade of other plants for example. So the plant over millions of years, plants have evolved to have a bunch of different sort of reactions to things like shading pressure and um, uh, herbivores and parasites that affect in different ways. And so like, for example, botrytis 
uh, manipulates the plant, it takes advantage of an antivirus response, which is to have the cell destroy itself. Um, and it makes the plant destroy itself with the cells and then it just feeds on the dead cells. So like, even then you create this really great weapon against viruses and then another pathogen use it against you. So there's no kind of winning, you know, there's a lot of uh, adaptations going on. So a powder is very unlikely to be effective unless they tell you in what way it's effective and how. And yeah, so. Good point. And um, unless we want to go a little bit deeper onto that, I want to uh, maybe switch it up a little bit and do another IPM related question from Shredder0911 who asks at Shape Home Grow, I have a box I have box elder bugs outside and they eat pretty much everything outside and birds do not seem to like them. I can kill them, but they keep coming back. Thoughts? Question mark. Yeah, I did answer that. Um, there's so there's different kinds of there's a lot of like red bugs, essentially, that look kind of like box elder bugs. So it sort of depends. I feel like box elder bugs tend to, if I remember correctly, they do tend to concentrate on box elder. Um, and similar maple. species like maple, yeah. the little those little windmills that fall if you let those just sit on your ground you're going to have box elder bugs off the ass because they eat the little seed of the of the uh maple yeah i had definitely seen that too so like i don't think they're a big like cannabis pest in my experience um but it can be like really shocking when you have like a ton of them kind of erupt out of nowhere um and uh, I think that they, they were asking, everything. yeah, that's true too, right? I think they're even called cotton stain bugs sometimes, the group of, um, that, they, that they're a part of, because like um, they're a big pest or certain ones are a big pest in like cotton and like uh, fabric uh, crops. So like when they, you know, when they make waste, like the waste literally stains the fibers and that's not very fun. Buveria bastiana might be helpful for them as a biocontrol, but um, I don't think I would stress too much about them personally. Velifer works good against them, according to uh, Steve at Potaponics. Oh, very nice. And um, since we already answered that in the chat and quickly addressed it on the show, I want to go on to JP from NB's question, who says, at Cheap Home Grow, got a question about a transfer pump. Can you use that effectively for teas, IPM sprays, compost, extracts, or will the impeller all the biology? I don't know a ton about your particular transfer pump or how it works, but um, we mentioned a little bit on past shows about different spraying options. And I really like, um, God, I'm forgetting the name right now, but uh, it's not a Dewey mister. It's um, God, I'm blanking on the name, but if you go back a few shows and look at IPM, I could probably find it here in just a second, but it's like a sanitization project or, or product that has like a, 20 to like 45 micron adjustment and it's good for indoor use for small gardens and um that might even be too small for biology though so i'm curious maybe of uh, matthew or anybody else on the panel's thoughts on spraying uh biology like compost tea uh or compost ex extracts i uh, i actually didn't hear a part of your sentence when you were asking the, the what the what the question was so could you repeat that he says, can you use a transfer pump for spraying effectively things like compost tea, IPM spray, or compost extracts, or will the impeller decimate all the biology? Oh, okay. Okay. I see. I see. Um, 
I don't think that, I mean, the, the, like the biology that is like microbial might be okay, I think, but like something like a nematode or, or something like that, I think would be destroyed in the process. Or if you find any fungal that's fucked. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It'd be broke up pretty small though. It might still be fine. Yeah. I thought like spores and canidia maybe. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Spores would be fine. They're small enough. I don't know. I honestly don't spray my plants with much of anything unless I see an issue. I'm usually, I like, I'll run for some predators if I see something too crazy, but outdoors, my shit's the mother nature tends to show up, you know, whatever, unless it's um, environmental, like you start raining and stuff like that, then I might try to get some kind of labs or something to spray on my plants. But I've always just done it with a backpack sprayer. I'm not a backpack, but a pump, hand pump sprayer. So there's no impeller at all. It's just like the force of the water. But yeah, biology can definitely be a little bit tricky to spray. Um, but I don't know, microbials. I've heard Brandon say that he would want a larger screen than some of like the five micron stuff that he's seen on some of the. I think Petra has like a five micron filter, um, but yeah, there's a bunch of options out there. Petra tools I'm seeing recommended in the chat. They're a little bit larger scale. I'd say from like larger indoor grows, like in a commercial setting or outdoor and Brandon grows. Brandon has a discount, Bokashi. He's Bokashi, save some money. Yeah, in the Petra. 10% off, uh, code word Bokashi or Bokashi Earthworks, I'm not sure, but I think it's just Bokashi. I think it's just Bokashi. I bet you could ask him. <laughs> yeah, DM him. Yeah. I bet you could find out, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's worth saving some money. Those things are expensive, you know. Well, they're not really expensive for what they are. You can get a big backpack sprayer for like 150 bucks, and it the battery lasts for a long ass time, which is pretty amazing to me when I used it. I was pretty impressed with the battery life. Seed person one mentions um, asking if the pressure from the sprayer can mess with the biology, and I suppose like that, I think that could be possible. Um, and if we don't know what the micron size is, like you were mentioning. Um, theoretically, I think you could, you could have like a grading essentially that is, um, kind of too fine. Um, but I don't know what those, what those physical parameters are personally. Curious if anybody in the chat remembers the thing that I recommended. It's like a little green unit. It's handheld plug-in. Um, I think Odoban makes it, it's like meant for disinfecting things, but it can also be used for gardening as well. And yeah, um, something junior, right? Yeah. The fog master junior. There we go. Fog master. Who says smokers have bad memory? Oh man. It's, it's the lack of smoke. I actually had to go and grab something to puff on. I picked go. one up and I set it down somewhere and I misplaced it. So I had to grab something else to puff on and, uh, but yeah, that Fogmaster Jr. I'll try and pull up right now just to show it off because I I'm think it's good it's definitely one of the best options, in my opinion, for a home grower, um, just based on the size and the costs. And it is something that you have to plug into the wall. So, I mean, as a home grower, most of us have an outlet nearby, but you can see there's a variety of price like this one on Amazon's 150, but you see uh, PE Strong for 120. And I found like $54 here used on eBay and it's a pretty good unit. I don't recommend the Ryobi's. They're much larger um, as far as the size of the spray, the droplets. And um, as far as IPM goes, you want to make sure that you can actually get down to the small enough sizes. So you're getting the application. 
but yeah, this uh, Fogmaster Jr. is one that I've actually even seen people use it outdoors with good effects. And I just wouldn't recommend the, um, sometimes it does come with its own pesticide. I wouldn't recommend using that because it's probably banned in your state for cannabis, or you just might not want to consume cannabis that's been sprayed with an ornamental pesticide product as a general rule of thumb, unless it's like uh, approved and created for the product that you're working with, then I tend to uh, avoid it unless it's something like sulfur, for example, you can get bonide, uh, micronized sulfur and use that in a vaginal cannabis plant. And it doesn't have to be like a cannabis specific spray to be effective, but um, it's good to make sure that it's okay to be used on cannabis before you start spraying it on your plants. Buddy Kilowatt asks if uh, Bacillus thuringiensis is only effective when wet. Um, I mean, I think that that's an important, sort of an important pro process, but what's really more important is that it gets eaten usually by the, uh, the thing that's going to be um, killed by the BT, like a caterpillar or something, or make contact with it and somehow get into the body. But usually it's through the oral route. The two big ones are BTI and BTK, right? And isn't BTI like for caterpillars or no BTK is caterpillars or BTI is like mosquitoes or something? Yeah, I can't remember. Mosquitoes and fungus gnat larvae maybe, but uh, BTK is the caterpillar. There we go. Yeah. And BTI, like the mosquito dunks and mosquito dips, are the real cheap stuff you can get at Lowe's, Home Depot, Walmart, wherever, uh, local box store. Amazon, whatever that stuff. Um, I've recommended that for a lot of people that were struggling with fungus gnats and they had really good results with it, watering it in just a tiny little pinch. It's the same biology that we're just describing the BTI. Um, and it gets the job done. Uh, typically though, I would recommend getting a little bit better airflow. Just allowing more time for your, uh, good thing maybe making use of a good mulch. I just want to check in with you guys because I bumped my mic. Is my audio still coming through good? Because sometimes it goes it is, it is now, but you did have... Um, there was a minute we some, lost a couple. Some keywords. important keywords in that sentence okay. were lost. Well, damn. Uh, sorry about that. I should try to not move so much and unplug my microphone. But uh, you'd think after <laughs> this many shows, we'd be good. The strongest swimmers most often drown, Jack. It looks like it's like unplugging and replugging itself back in. So are you guys able to hear me now? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's you're clear. way better now. It's really good. All right. Good, good. Well, with that said, we do have another question from not. Uh, let me scroll up. JP from MB, who was a former panelist. He came on to visit us a few weeks ago, says, hey, has anybody tried using the magic butter machine? And is it good for making RSO? I am not a fan of the magic butter machine, but it's funny they bring that up because it was on last Wednesday on the Let's Be Bud show. Rafusa came on and, and did a little demonstration of his magic butter. He made some butter and we walked through the things we liked and didn't like about it. So that would be a good one for you to track down and watch. But what was uh, the biggest thing you didn't like about it? I was just say the biggest thing I don't <laughs> like about it is it has a blender in it and it just blends the fucking product into the whatever you're infusing butter or whatever. And when you do that, it's going to be so green. And so it just destroys the flavor. If you ask me. It like it's kind of all uh plant planty kind of grass. Like you're yes. saying. Yeah. Very, very plant flavor, very high in chlorophyll when you do things like that, like green ass butter, like it comes out literally pure green. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
it literally looks like, oh, that's cannabis infused butter because it is green. It's not yellow. Or On like the flip green. side, you're going to get a good infusion because you're going to have a ton of surface area. <laughs> and lots of heat. I think it heats while it's doing the extraction at a pretty high temperature because I don't think there's a vacuum. I think it's at like 140 or 200 or like really high. It only holds so much though, right? Spoiled. Right, but you can you can hack the system by clarifying your butter, making sure it's more a higher butter fat butter, and uh, that just the more the fat, the more you can absorb, the more THC you can absorb. Well, I mean, how much just, does it hold? Can you put like four ounces of trim in it? I don't have one. I don't like the whole design. Uh, okay, so I good enough. One. So, so I don't. I don't really Skillbo would be a good person to ask for anybody who's listening because he has one and he makes tinctures with it. I believe I don't think he actually uses it for butters. I think that it assists him in making his tincture to make the roller ball. So. It does have some good use. And I think that there's like 50 different recipes. Like it comes with a book and a bunch of different ways to infuse a bunch of different things. So it might be worth looking into. I'm more of a RSO had a real, from. Had the, a cool, they have a cool system for gummies. Uh, Rafusa was showing on there that they give you the whole kit, but you just use the whole bag they give you. It's got all the bullshit mixed in. So it makes them taste real good. And uh, he said he really liked the gummies to infuse those. So, I mean, yeah, there's definitely uses you can use for it, but uh yeah, I'm not a big fan of the blender on it. I'm not. I'm not a fan of blending the product. The I'm, I'm okay with blending oils, but not the plant material. I don't like that blender though. It's like the same thing with RSO. Like I'm not gonna when I do my wash, I I'd let it soak for like two days if I want to get a thorough extraction. But I'm not gonna shake the shit out of my jar when I'm doing it. Exactly. I'd rather do a gentle shake. And just... I, I can't same. imagine that. I. I it's just like I, I wouldn't go through that process. Not to say that it's not going to be effective or bad. It's just different than what I'm looking for. I know a lot of people that have used the magic butter machine and made edibles and been very happy with them, the potency, the ease of it. Um, I mean, it's literally, I think you just click a button, it turns itself on, and like a few hours later, you come back and you pretty much got finished product in uh, certain circumstances with like the butter, for example. The gummies are also really good that you can make from it. I've had Sun Grown 707, I think, made a couple with uh, his magic. It might be a magic herb machine. Like there's knockoff versions of it that are less expensive and stuff now too. Then I but, second, uh, I second Marcus in chat. Marcus Greenthumbs brought up how you've recommended the Source Turbo. And I would recommend the Source Turbo over a magic butter machine. If what you're looking for is RSO, I would get the Source Turbo because it's going to let you reclaim your alcohol. And that's a huge, that's, that's a huge thing. It's going to, um, over, depending on how much you're going to use RSO. And if you're like anybody I've ever got to try it, pretty much uh, everybody is like on it for life. So I would, um, I would consider the source turbo over, over our magic butter, but there's a cost difference for sure. Oh yeah. It's a lot more expensive for the source. If you're getting the bigger one, um, the source pro or whatever, and the source turbo, you can only make probably one to two grams at a time, to be honest. It's like a half Mason jar. Which is enough Whatever. for most people, honestly. The average person. Yeah. The, the oh yeah. New, me and my wife. Person. Me and my wife use it, and like I have a small little home grow in my closet, and we turn all of the stuff that I vape into RSO uh, because it's already decarboxylated, so you don't have to go through that process. And we also will turn small buds, trim, shake stuff that we just feel like not smoking on into RSO, and it's incredibly effective medicine. I talked a little bit on the show I did last night with Smot Poker about um, how I like to turn some of it into high CBN RSO even like once you pull it out of the extract craft uh, in my case I have a source as a little crucible that's like a non-stick surface and you can just pour that out into something or you can syringe it up um, we typically cook it down so there's like very little or no alcohol left and then we add our MCT oil and make it easier to syringe but if you want to pour it off into like a silicone baking uh, cup you can cook 
the alcohol off on like a coffee warmer, like a little mug warmer that gets like so around 200 degrees. And instead of just letting the alcohol cook off, if you leave it there for like a day or two, it'll turn almost black and get like super rich in CBN and uh, oxidize almost all the terpenes and make it way more sedating. So that's like my good night, nighty nighttime medication. And uh, I'm a big fan of RSO. It's really easy to make once you figure out the system. The machine is a little bit loud. It's got like a vacuum pump. And while it's working, it does make some noise. But um, in the background, you can just watch TV in the other room or something while it's running and you come back and you check on it. There's even a little app. It like tells you the temperature and everything. And you can watch like I bought one gallon of uh, 420 extractor, which is like corn based ethanol from Colorado. It's organic or whatever. And they'll ship it to your door. Um, but that made me, I want to say like close to 50 grams of RSO and a gram of RSO here in California in the legal market uh, to be sure that it's like tested and doesn't have ethanol still in it. And it's got a good amount of cannabinoids and things like that is going to go for $50 before tax, 50 bucks for one gram. And that's something that you can make with stuff that you've literally already consumed from a vaporizer. Like you're already been vape bud. You just pour it into a jar over and over and over. And when that gets folded up, pour some alcohol over it, let it soak and then strain it off and make yourself some RSO. So it can be really inexpensive and it can be great medicine. That's actually my preferred medicine. It's the already been vaped RSO. It's like some of the most potent, amazing stuff. I love it. I like to say it's my most powerful magic. (laughs) I think that's like the magic of the cannabis. Like if somebody really, really has severe ailments like cancer or other like extreme pain, uh, extreme insomnia or, or even psychological issues, uh, many, many things that can help starting with just a tiny little, you know, drop. It could be like a grain of rice at first. And some people will work their way up to like a gram a day, which is impressive and they'll be feeling pretty good, but yeah. uh, that's they'll a, lot, sleep a sure. lot. They'll sleep good. Before uh, we let Spartan go, I want to get one more question in from JP from NB. He says, Zenthanol at Cheap Home Grow, what is an acceptable pest pressure level, especially when talking about outdoor cultivations? If the plants appear happy, um, let me scroll. It's not scrolling. Why is my scroll not working? The plants appear happy. Are they likely still healthy plants? Right. So the, I, I also entered this one, but it definitely bears repeating because it gets into the topics I really like to, to mention, which is that not just for cannabis, but for crops in general, your pest, your sort of like acceptable press pressure, a lot of times will be dictated by um, where you are and what pests we're talking about because they can some of them are going to be more destructive than others and things like that and on a quote-unquote luxury crop like cannabis where like there's a high you know whether you want to talk about profit or or not like basically high value right for the product um usually that makes the tolerance for pest pressure sharply go down um if we're talking like in economic terms but i feel like that's also true for anything you're trying to get that, um, you know, that is very valuable, like in a medicinal context, right? Um, and if, and again, if the plants look fine and it seems like the yields are okay, and by which I mean it's good amount of yield, but also the quality is good, then I'm liable to say that the plant was perhaps, you know, resistant to, you know, that, th- those pests. And what I mean by that, or really I should say tolerant, um, people have kind of a misconception about how resistance works and I bang on about it maybe a little too much, but uh, basically if the plant is like succumbing in a very severe way and is like really, really like, it looks really like bad from pests and obviously probably not going to have a great response, uh, you know, with yield wise, 
but it seems but if it seems like there's not a whole lot of damage you know that might change over time as the pest population increases um if you can do something about it, it's always i think almost always better to do something about it because usually um uh, you make up for the cost by being proactive but there are pests out there where like you know if you get them like the box elder bug we were talking about wouldn't really call it a major issue if you get a couple of box elder bugs bugs on your plant you know it's probably not going to uh, break the bank when it comes to your yield at the end of the growth season so that sort of a thing so it really does it does kind of depend but generally it's better to um, prevent them from happening in the first place or uh, get rid of them if they're a problem pest um, earlier rather than later yeah i would say just because they look healthy um like, cause my, when I first started growing, when I got spider mites the very, very first time, I didn't know spider mites existed and my yield was going down, but they never got to the point where they made webs. By the time they made the webs, the one, one crop, that's when I realized and found out what they were because I was, you know, ignorant. So they could be damages that are unseen definitely. And like botrytis too, you, there's one leaf that's dead and then you pull it out and has no resistance and even though the outside is green and healthy looking it's dead on the inside if you guys experience that that sucks too so i would say you know that yeah i would say scout all the time right so that's and all yeah yeah definitely if you can afford it like it's almost always like i mean if you want to put a like again if you want to put it on a price point or a commercial point or whatever you want to say um, it's almost always better, more cost effective for your time to like be looking for a potential problem in your crop, especially if you're a home grower and you have like one plant or three plants or six plants or, or, or possibly more than that. Um, it's a lot easier to do that kind of a thing. So you can put in that extra bit of care um, and, and it pays dividends, in my opinion. Um, if you If you have a... Like when it comes to like pest pressure, like the treatment cost is what? It's the product that you apply, right? It's the labor, it's the time, your time that you're using and also the stress and panic that you have about whether or not you're even going to be able to destroy this, this problem. All of those things are avoided if you're able to be super proactive. So honestly, it's really worth it. Great point. And I want to give Spartan a chance to give his final thoughts and shout out. I know he's got to get over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show and let the dogs out, refill a stray and get some water, all that good stuff. So Spartan Grown, thank you again, as always, for joining us. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks, everybody, for uh, hanging out with us again. It's always This is always a fucking fun show. And I love uh, learning. It seems like this show, I've sat back and learned for a lot of the time. So super awesome job, guys, on the panel, especially Matthew. Thank you. And then... Uh, Thanks for the chat, man. They did a really good job asking questions. We didn't bring people up. We were still just answering questions the whole time. I love those shows where we can just be communicating with chat the whole time because that's what we're here for. So growers loved everybody out there. Um, I'll be up at the Michigan Bros Grow Show here in about 15 minutes. I'll see you over there. And I hope everybody has a great day. Keeps growing. Peace out, Spartan. See you guys. Spartan. Keep on growing for sure. And growers love to you. Have a great time at the Michigan Bros Grow Show and look forward to seeing you next week. Well, second, what he just said with the chat, I mean, this week, especially, I'm always impressed by the level of intelligent conversation that's going on within our chat, the dialogues, the questions, people answering each other before we can even get to some of the stuff, uh, the side conversations that are springing off of the conversations that we're having on the main panel. And uh, just really want to shout out, 
you know, a lot of the listeners, Smot Poker, Real Red Hairs, we had Medically Fit in here, Seed Person One, uh, Sal Blindberg. We just got a question from Darker, who is a newer grower. It says, I have an issue of getting poor yields, about 20 grams for a plant. Still a very nice smoke, but smoke better than, sorry, I'm scrolling and trying to read. <laughs> All right, let me try this again. 20 grams for a plant, still a very nice smoke, better than most I bought. I did a two gallon pot in soil, may try a five gallon fabric pot next time. This was only my second run. So to you, Darker, I want to say, like we just said, keep on growing, keep growing, man. It's only your second grow. 20 grams, that's like, a, you know, you're almost hitting one ounce per plant. Like that was a metric that I was commenting on earlier that most people will be able to hit once they get comfortable growing and usually a little bit more than that, sometimes double, triple, or even more depending on the size of your plants. But you are early into this. I will say a two gallon plant is pretty small. Um, especially when you're growing in soil, I would definitely recommend trying out that five gallon pot and just, you know, keep on trying, keep on learning, listening to shows like this and others reading up when you feel like there's an issue. If something looks not right, AKA if it's not like green and, uh, with good turgor pressure and like standing upright, um, usually a good idea to start looking into like, why is my plant flopping over or why am I getting these yellow or brown or red spots or why are my leaves dying off and things like that? It's a, uh, and always feel free to ask questions. I mean, you can ask questions on the show. Uh, you can always DM myself at Jack Greenstock, like you can see right here behind me on Instagram. Um, also Jack underscore Greenstock on Instagram. It's my backup and on Twitter. That's my name there. If you want to email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. I know this isn't like final thoughts or shout outs, but that's just how you can get in touch with me personally. I know many of the other guys on the panel have been growing for many, many, many years and have tons of experience and would love to uh, help out when they have some free time. And uh, we love getting new people into growing and having more success with it. And when you're at 20 grams and a two gallon pot, I think that there's a little bit of room for improvement. It sounds like the quality of smoke is good. You're happy with that. And I'm happy for you because there's nothing better than growing your own. So definitely enjoy it. <laughs> like I mentioned earlier, I grew some blue dream. There's a little foxtail and people were telling me I should chop it down and kill it off. Still to this day, it was some of the best smoke that I've come across. Like, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn. It's just, I really like blue dream a lot. And that one was tasty. It got me the high I was looking for. It had a great medical effect. Some of the hash I still have to this day because uh, it has a specific medical effect. It helps my hands stop shaking, which uh, somebody with arthritis is very beneficial in certain circumstances. So uh, shout out to you, Darker. And I'm curious if anybody else has any advice or just kind words for Darker, our buddy. And I think he's a new listener because I haven't seen that name or maybe I'm just, my memory is not the best. Yeah, I'd say if he's in like soil, like organic, you definitely need more than two gallons to take a plant to any decent size to maturity and have it. Uh, yeah, it's hard. So yeah, I would say definitely go with a five gallon minimum and keep like keeping the same size you're trying to grow them in the two gallon, and that should definitely improve everything to start with. And then you could even see if you want to do more. I see people in chat saying they got seven gallon fabric. Uh, and yeah, the bigger, depending on situation, usually the better. But work your way up to yeah. We talked about that earlier. Transplanting helps. So if you start in like a solo cup, go to a one or two gallon and then switch to a five or seven gallon, uh, the roots will do a better job at colonizing that pot before they move on to that larger pot. It's easier to not over and underwater when you're in an appropriately sized pot. It tends to grow a little bit quicker. And um, some people said the light really matters. So make sure that you've got a decent grow light. I would check out CocoForCannabis.com, their grow light guide. He's got some of the best price and uh, most fairly evaluated lights for what we, we're going to use it for. He hangs up the light and measures it, what it's going to hit at the canopy. So, I mean, that's what we care about. We don't care what the light does in a 3D sphere and 100% of the light that it puts off because 
really what matters to us is how much of that light can hit down to the canopy. And if you're growing with something like some Amazon uh, blurple light, you might have more success if you switched over to something that is uh, like an all white LED or a ceramic metal halide, or even like an HPS. Like I know Nola Grow still kills it with those. And um, so Noah, do you have any uh, advice for this guy who's on a second grow, struggling a little bit, but wants to keep keep at it, keep it going and maybe get a little bit better yield on his next runs? Yeah, I'd probably just start off with uh, the thing that you just sent off Spartan with keep growing. Uh, just keep doing it. You know, that's how you're going to learn. Uh, any questions you have, you can direct message me, Darker, and uh, I'll help you with anything I can. Um, definitely, like Tao said, definitely a bigger pot. But, you know, you don't know his uh, situation with his room. You don't know the, the light situation. Like you said, the improving light is probably going to be your best uh, bang for your buck. Then if you're improving your light, most likely it's going to be more powerful. You're going to need something to help cool it probably more than you're doing now. But any questions you have, you can direct message me anytime, and I'll do my best to walk you through it. They say they're going to switch up their pot size for the next run for sure is one of the comments they made. And I just want to read this comment from Marcus Greenthumb and thank you for the kind words. He says, Jack has saved me so much cash, learned so much this last year. And I love to see that because really like the whole inspiration of the show, the cheap home grow is to save people money, keep that money in your pocket. So you don't have to go to a dispensary and pay a 60, 70, $80 an eighth or whatever it is where you're at or uh, just buying it in the street at however much per ounce. It's nice to be able to give people the safety, the security, and the money savings that come along with growing your own at home affordably when you aren't getting kind of scammed and conned by a few of the shady actors in the business that you might run across at certain hydro stores. But for the most part, I think uh, once you link up with this community and some of the others uh, associated with it, like the Cheap Home or, or, uh, Michigan Bros Grow Show, uh, fucking talking shit with Eagle and, and uh, many others, embracing organics, I could go on all night long talking about great cannabis podcasts and shows, uh, but we only have eight minutes left. And I just want to say I'm, I'm thankful for all of them because I've learned a lot from them as well. And, and they've saved me money and they've helped me out. And uh, it's just a great community. And it's nice to be around and associated with such awesome people. And like Noah the Grow here, I was talking about lighting earlier. People like to look down on HPS, but I will still always hold him and many others that I know that grow with HPS as an example of, you know, people that can crush it with older technology. Granted, HPS was sort of invented in 1978. They're still getting more efficient. And some of them are more efficient than modern LEDs that are just not using enough diodes or not using the proper drivers or proper diodes. So um, before somebody looks down or, or talks bad about this, realize that they are actually still competitive with a lot of the stuff on the market. And people like Noah are crushing it with them and have been crushing it with them for a long time. So. Cheers, Noah. And uh, looks like you just had a harvest and you got some new plants in there. You're muted up uh, in case you're talking right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just flipped these ones right here. I just flipped those ones over there. And um, yeah, these ones right here getting really close. Oh, another three, four days. I'll have to take a look at it here. You can probably about day 57 ish there. Could be a couple of days longer on one of them, but. Yeah, no, uh, there's, it's, it's no magic trick. It just takes, uh, you know, work and uh, paying attention, trying to improve just like anything else. You know, you're not going to wake up one day and be good at shooting hoops. You got to practice, you got to practice growing, but it's just like you said, you know, it's such a great tool. And I just love that feeling of being able to crack open a jar that's yours and uh, you knew you grew it and you know, it went into it. You know, it doesn't have pesticides, you know, it doesn't have heavy metals, like some of this other stuff and some of the stuff that you don't want to smoke and, 
just like you said, it could you can grow find different strains with my platinum strain I got that I love the effects of. And you know, there's there's a lot of pluses to this, and there's a great community that I wish I had an advantage of. Just like Tal said earlier, I've mentioned the show, the show before, but my first time, I, I just thought I had powdery mildew, but it was spider mites. And I had another buddy that was a grower show me that. You know, it was my first grow. I didn't know anything. And, um, yeah, you know, you just learn and you get better as you go, man. For sure. Yeah, that's, that's a honest to goodness truth. I mean, uh, if it was easy, everyone would do it, I guess, is a, a good saying that I've heard and, and relate to for sure. And this is one of those things. It's like a sport. You have to practice. You have to work at it. You have to try hard. You have to put in the time to learn the knowledge and i want to quote spot poker real quick who says big respect for all growers doing anything at any capacity a fellow farmer 100 and i couldn't agree more one of my favorite pages that i follow hopefully they're still around it was called one plant closet grower one plant awesome. closet grower he only grew one plant at a time that was all he needed for he or she or they i don't even know um, but that was all they needed and it was just one plant it was actually the beauty of it like they had extra space in the tent around it they could have grown more plants probably plant count or not it just uh that was what they needed that's what they grew and the attention to detail the love the, the connection they had with that plant it was just like i still look at that page and i'm like there's something beautiful about that and just no matter what size your garden no matter how many plants you're growing if you're growing a beautiful plant then uh, keep at it uh, keep an open mind and an open heart there's so many really awesome uh, respectful intelligent people in this community that will help you and will guide you and will probably go above and beyond and send you free stuff like if you need seeds i'm sure somebody on this panel or, or elsewhere in the community will hook you up and instead of spending 100 bucks for that first 10 pack um if you're in the us dm me and maybe i could hook you up but uh with that said there's just an endless supply of great people in the community tal being one of them yeah so, i'll say you know when every like shit comes up you just you know know that for a fact stuff's gonna happen but when it, you encounter it, you figure out how to deal with it, and then you know what to do the next time you happen to see it. And as you go through each thing, eventually you'll get most of the things that you'll experience, and you'll be, yeah, having killed Corvus. That's all. Just keep going. Well, and never be afraid of failure and, and growing or in life in general, because you learn so much from the failures. It might seem like a failure in that moment, but the next time you go through that grow, you're more prepared. It's another notch in your belt. It's a tool. You're like, oh, I saw that. And now I know this might be coming. I need to look out for that. Like, what can I do to prevent this from happening again? Or how can I get in front of this thing? Or how can I do better this time around? Whether it's your drying, your cure, or whether it was getting your, you know, pests coming into your garden and uh, how you dealt with them, when you dealt with them, what you dealt with them with. There's so many things. Like, we just talked almost the entire show about IPM. And uh, we could talk another show all about it in a different regard. There's this, it's endless opportunity for us to keep learning and growing. With that being said, I want to pass it to Matthew who did an excellent job tonight with the show topic. So thank you, Matthew. And uh, I'd like to give it over to you for a final thought and shout out. My uh, final thoughts are going to be short here. Um, these are two posts, this one and this one. These are two like interactions with insects that I think a lot of people don't get a lot of experience to. This first one here are ants that are, um, they're feeding on a wound on a cannabis plant and they're trying to extract moisture out of it essentially because it's hot, it's dry, it's Northern California, Humboldt in particular. So, you know, something to watch out for if you're seeing this, of course, if you don't know, ants also love honeydew from aphids and other insects that feed on plant sap. So, um, 
you know, if you see this going on or if you've never seen this going on, check your plants and make sure you don't wound them or you might have this sort of interaction. It's not terribly problematic for, a, for the plant, but some ants will go to even further lengths. And another thing here, this was uh, shared with me from somebody in uh, Guadalupe in the Caribbean Sea. These are, I'm pretty sure, these are some sort of um, uh, ambrosia beetle, um, bark beetle they're sometimes called. You might have heard of things like the polyphagous shot hole borer. Uh, if you live in California or other parts of North America um, and other parts of the world, they're a huge pest, big problem, kill tons of oaks and other, other plants. And um, they might be coming to a cannabis plant near you if uh, I'm even a little bit close to being right by this identification. So please watch out, know that there are other pests out there that maybe have never even been documented before and consider, um, consider this when you're scouting. You might come across something that you've never seen before and maybe you're the first one or one of the first people to ever encounter it. And uh, don't take that lightly. Share that information if you can. What did he notice that he that uh, brought that to his attention, Matthew? What? How did he like discover was, it? Essentially, what? How was, how was the he able to find leaves it? yellowing, and the thing was just dying. Or oh yeah, uh, there were there were like holes in the bark of the plant. Uh, okay. If you check out my video on my Instagram, for anyone who's curious, at the very end you can see uh, pictures of the of the little small little holes in the bark. Um, and also when he peeled it together or uh, apart, you could see like places where the tissue had gotten necrotic and brown. Um, but I don't think it was having a lot of uh, symptoms before oh, that. Maybe yeah. some branches were dying and things like that. But that's what happens in uh, bigger trees, too. So mm -hmm. it's kind of scary. It's, if it could take down a tree, it can definitely take down a cannabis plant. So something to look yeah. out for and think twice before you import plants from uh, the Caribbean. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, with that said, I want to go ahead and pass it over to Noah the Roa. Yeah. Uh, sorry I was late today. Uh, Got to be able to show a couple of my plants there and uh, enjoyed the conversation as always. Um, had a great time listening to all you guys and uh, see everybody next week. Look forward to seeing you <laughs> next week as well. Sorry, I'm... <laughs> Sour Diesel got me. Actually, you know what? It's not Sour Diesel. I made that mistake twice now. This is a Super Silver Haze. <laughs> so mix up my sativas on occasion. Last and certainly not least, the American one. I'm glad you're enjoying your smoke, Jack. That's awesome. And thanks for hosting tonight, as always. And everyone in chat, good to see everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm just the American one on the YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore teens on the IG. Most of you know how to find me. And yeah, you can hit me up for any questions or anything. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you next week. Have a great week. Definitely looking forward to another great week ahead. I had a great time this week on the show. Thank you to the panelists who joined me this week. And thank you to the guests in the chat uh, who asked great questions and had a great conversation that entertained us and uh, helped us keep the show going. I am actually very happy that we were able to get the show semi on time. I was like running really late coming home from work and literally got this running like i sprinted from my car to the laptop and got it going like a few minutes late so we're running a few minutes long and i'll take the one final question because it leads into my shout outs which is from seed person one at cheap home grow jack what's the word on 50 strains of purple is it out and no not yet it is still in the process of uh, being worked on 
um, trying to make it more of a community project this time around and get as many photos directly from the people in the community. So if you go to my Instagram, check out my last post from uh, at Jack Greenstock, there's a purple cannabis leaf. And if you swipe over, it'll show 50 of the strains that are going to be included in 50 strains of purple. If you've grown them yourself, or if you know someone who has, and you'd like to share those photos with me to be included in the book, I would love to have listener and uh, grower submissions from the cannabis community of uh, people that know about myself and the book and the process in general versus just kind of going out in the wild and trying to source them down and using my own photos. So uh, with that being said, if you want a copy of 50 Strains of Green, the first book, which is now in the second print, I call it the second edition, you can go to 50strains.com, 50strains.com. And uh, I guess last little bit of note is you can find me at Jack Greenstock, like I said a few minutes ago on Instagram, uh, Jack underscore Greenstock is my backup account. And on Twitter, I'm Jack underscore Greenstock as well. Finally, I'd love to shout out again, Cannabuzz, like I did last night on Smart Poker Show, the cannabis friendly social media. If you're not on there, definitely check it out. I'm on there at Jack Greenstock and uh, I'm actually pretty proud of my feed. I, I post over there more because they don't delete my stuff and I'm not worried to have my account removed like Instagram might. So um, you can go over there and check out lots of my posts and uh, communicate with me over there as well. And if you're not on social media at all, feel free to email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. With that said, thank you all so much for coming. And thank you to everyone who listens on the podcast afterward. Uh, Dr. MJ is not with us this week, so I'll say grow her love and uh, catch you all next week. Peace and love, everybody. Jack Greenstock, signing out.